Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. And uh, the, early, the early text was 1 Timothy 6, but I, I switched gears and I hope that's okay. So. But we're still going to have a call to Christian fathers. As a matter of fact, you can issue a call to Christian fathers from almost any text of the scripture. Um, and that'll, that'll be kind of the focus of my application today, but it won't be. Certainly, um, the scripture's not limited to, to fathers and its application. And so, so um, ladies and children, I hope you will profit from this time as well. Um, I don't know if you grew up in a Christian home or not, with a Christian father or not, um, as God has brought you under the sound of the gospel. We're all thankful for wherever we come to that point. Um, my father was, was saved as a teenager when he was 18 years old. Um, my mother was 16 when I was born. I had very young parents. And so uh, I look back at that time of of a, a pretty fantastic display of God's grace in our family's life. And I'm very thankful for my father. He's a great, did a great job. He was not college educated, um, barely high school educated, but he was certainly educated in God's word as he grew to, to know the Lord and, and share him um, with us. And uh, it was his greatest desire that we would know Christ as our Savior, that we would be faithful to the local church and he was a great example of that. Um, Grace, my daughter, played Amazing Grace today, and Amy accompanied her on the piano. That's a special song. Uh, the word grace is a special word. And one of the reasons we named Grace Grace is, um, is, is looking back, my wife and I were married for a few years, and, and the Lord didn't see fit to bless us with children. Uh, during the first few years of our marriage, and we were praying about that. Uh, my dad was diagnosed with uh, brain cancer, uh, suffered from that. He had surgery and, and had a recovery, and then, and then he passed away from a brain tumor when he was in his, his uh, later 40s. And so I'm now older than my father in earth years. You know, So um, passed away from that, but a year after he passed away, we found out or during that following year, we found out that a year after he passed away, we were expecting our first child. And uh, I think that was God's special way of, of saying, you know, I'm in, I'm in control of your family, in control of your life, and I, I want to show some special grace to you. So we named her Grace. She was born around Christmas time, a year after my father passed away. It was a very special time for us, and it continues to be a special time, Grace, to have you as a daughter. Thankful for my son Pearson as well. And um, Pearson was born, I want to name him Jack, something simple, you know, or Joe. I'd, gr- I'd grown up with the name Pearson Johnson and had people give me a hard time about it being a last name. And my wife insisted on naming him Pearson IV. And uh, I figured she's, she's having him and she has that prerogative, you know, as a mother. <laughs> so, so we're thankful for, for Pearson IV. He's been a real blessing to our family as well. Thankful for the Lord's work in, in their lives. Um, we're thankful for God's grace as fathers. And I'm sure you are as well. Whether you have children or not, God has a role for you. And if you're a father, God has a special role for you to play in leading your family in the Lord. Um, dads these days find their identity in a lot of things um, that are outside of the Scripture. 
Uh, I certainly enjoy sports. I'm a Green Bay Packer fan. I like the Detroit Tigers. I try to and Michigan football and Indiana basketball. Those are all things that a lot of dads, they, they enjoy sports. They find their identity in their favorite sports team. Um, sometimes you find your identity in your children's sports team, right? As they grow up and you get them involved, maybe too involved sometimes, you find your identity in what they do. And uh, yes, my son can beat me in basketball now. Um, parents show their pride sometimes with their bumper stickers. You ever look at bumper stickers? Okay, you see those? Those are always interesting, sometimes interesting, sometimes not. Uh, my child is an honor student. You know, you see those bumper stickers. Have you ever seen the one that says, my child can beat up your honor student? <laughs> it's always a good one. Um, or my dashend is smarter than your honor student. You know, something like that. Um, you see animal lovers bumper stickers. The more people I meet, the more I like my dog. And they find their identity in their pets. Some men do. Some ladies do. Uh, you see religious bumper stickers, some good and some not so good. God is my co-pilot, or what is more properly phrased, God is my pilot, right? God is in control of my life. Um, I saw one that said the 1040 window or bust. That's a great missions bumper sticker. I'm going to go there and spread the gospel. In case of a rapture, this car will be unmanned. Ever seen that? Right? Or in case of rapture, may I have your car? It's not such a good one. Honk if you love Jesus. Don't blame me. I voted for whoever. Fill in the blank. And one of my favorites, work is for people who don't know how to fish. And that's a good Father's Day bumper sticker. I wish I could fish more, but that's the way it goes. Philippians chapter 3, Paul calls us to rejoice in something. And I want to channel this toward us as families and fathers especially, that, that our identity is to be found in the Lord and in Christ and in his work primarily. Whatever things you find interest in in this culture, whatever things make you put a bumper sticker on your car, whatever things kind of give you joy, make sure the most important of those things is your identity in Christ. Paul starts off uh, Philippians chapter 3. He says, finally, brethren, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. It's find your joy in the Lord primarily. And I'm going to read a few verses here in chapter 3. He says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me. It's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else does, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatsoever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his 
sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And what I want us to focus on today is that whatever things in life that we enjoy, whatever things we find some sense of identity in, whatever things are important to us that we spend our time doing, let's make sure we put them in perspective to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Whatever things we enjoy, whatever things we find our identity in, whatever things we spend our time doing, let's make sure we put them in perspective to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord and being found in him, being identified with him. Hopefully that will be a good charge for you fathers on Father's Day today. Let's look first of all in the first few verses, verses 4 through 6. Paul says, place what the world values in proper perspective. Now, Paul doesn't talk about sports teams. He doesn't talk about hobbies. He doesn't talk about crafts. He doesn't talk about cars, things like that. Some of the things we, we have maybe the privilege of talking about in our culture because we live in such a, 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 a affluent culture, a first world culture. But for Paul, the most important things in his culture were religious things, religious identifications. For the sake of argument to explain this point of why we should have a far surpassing value in knowing Jesus Christ our Lord, he explains a perspective that he had as one who had put his confidence in his status or in his identity as a religious Jew. He didn't turn away from this kind of perspective because he failed to attain it. He attained a lot of things. He turned away from it because ultimately it had no value in comparison to knowing Jesus Christ as his Lord. What were some of these things that Paul mentions as a Jew? He had reason to boast. As an ethnic Jew, here in the eyes of what was popular in his culture at his time, he describes how he had had obtained a lofty standing. He could have quite the bumper stickers in his day. But how this got him really nowhere spiritually. He says his family standing was ultimate. In Israel, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Not only was he a pure-blooded Jew, but he was a Benjamite. You know, the tribe of Benjamin were were those who had never forsaken God in the law. It's one of the tribes that remained faithful to the Davidic line in the Old Testament. He had a great deal of social standing. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day as a boy the way the law required. He was a Jew from the very beginning. He had social standing as a Jew. His education was was incredible. He was educated as a Pharisee, and and we see in another portion of Scripture that he actually sat at the feet of of one of the top scribes and teachers as well. So he had the best of education, the best it had to offer in religious education. It was part of his status. We see part of his piety as well. His piety in in front of his uh, countrymen, he was a Pharisee blameless in the law. And you know the Pharisees are the ones who kept a very strict system of regulations and rules to keep the Old Testament in daily life. They took the law and they applied it to almost everything that they did. They're the ones whose system gave them the most assurance or so they thought of being rightly related to God. Paul kept the law flawlessly so no one could blame him for for failing. As to his, his zeal, you know, you're like, well, that's education's good and status is good, but what are you really doing? And he said, I did a lot. I had a lot of zeal. As to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. 
Verse 6 says, persecutor of the church. Paul depended on these things for his spiritual status, for his cultural identity, his personal identity. This was satisfactory for him for a while until he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul depended on these things for his spiritual status. And I want to ask us today, I know, I know we don't come from this kind of religious context, most of us. Some of you have come from a religious context where you found your identity in doing works of religion or, or being the right kind of person. But many of us find our identity in cultural things that we would consider somewhat moral. What kind of things do most people consider to be symbols of success in our society? What kind of things? I'll ask you. Go ahead. We don't usually talk a lot on Sunday morning, but what kind of things do people see as status symbols in our society? Your income. Okay. Your salary. If you have a greater income, you're more important and you're more successful. What else? What car you drive? Did you say car? Yeah. What car you drive? You know, that's a big deal in our culture, especially coming from Detroit. Okay. What kind of car you have? is a big deal. What else? Your house, okay? What is the American dream but having your own car, your own house, and a dog, right? And maybe a picket fence? I mean, some uh, house is bigger than the one next door. What else? Your job. Find your identity in your work. We do that. In some good ways, we do that. But in some ways, we work becomes an idol to us. Or what position we have at work, even. I like to say every man is a kingdom if he makes his kingdom small enough, right? I mean, we can all be like the big cheese if we, if we make sure the, the, the mousetrap is small enough. And, and so we, we got to be careful about this finding our identity in other things. We know what it's like. We know how it feels. We know the pressures that we face to have that. Sometimes our retirement accounts is a big deal, you know, if we're, we're ready to retire. And, and, and as John Piper writes in one of his books, Don't Waste Your Life, go out collecting seashells in our retirement. We get to enjoy the time we have. Uh, sometimes we actually find our identity in our families too much. It's Father's Day. Family's a good thing. It's an institution God ordained, he instituted. And, and yet sometimes that is the most important thing to us. So if everything looks right and if everyone's doing well and everyone's well-educated, then that's where we find our identity. My family is the most important thing to me, someone might say. What kind of things do most people depend on for their righteousness? Sometimes it's works. Some people don't care. They just try to fill their life with enough noise so they don't have to worry about their con- the pangs of their conscience, right? Some people do try to work their way through self-righteousness. Some t- people follow a religious system. Nonetheless, these are all man-centered approaches to, to finding our identity or finding our, our identity with God as well. And Paul gives us his perspective as a, for instance, a very significant one, that finding your identity in your religion, in your culture, in your social status, in your income, in your possessions, is something that, compared to Christ, is really nothing. And that's what he goes on to say. Paul's perspective, what truly matters. Paul says, keep what truly matters in proper perspective. And we see this in verse verse 7 and following. He says, but whatever was gained to me, Whatever I, and I think we can read between the lines or between the words, whatever I thought was gained to me, Paul says, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ or in comparison to Christ. In verse 7 and 8, we see Paul surrendering his self-righteousness. 
More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, but refuse, so that I may gain Christ. We have the right perspective. We realize that counting much of what we count as success in this world or what we find our identity in as gain is actually loss ultimately. In Paul's loss, he depicts himself in verse 7 as a a spiritual miser. He says, I have counted as loss. I have reckoned them to be loss. These coins of righteousness which I have gathered to my account really mean nothing. It's like the Confederate currency at the end of the Civil War. Wheelbarrows were brought in, and it, it was worth nothing in comparison. He had counted these things as gains, literally a plural, toward his goal of achieving his former righteousness. But after knowing Christ, he realized the things he saw as earning righteousness and status and identity were actually causing him loss spiritually. And that's what he says. These things uh, I now count as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Or what things were assets to me I reckon to be positive hindrances to my accounts now that I know Christ. Uh, just think, what if Paul had trusted in his, his fact of being a, a Benjamite? You know, come judgment day, what good would that have done him? Or his pharisaical system of law-keeping, what good would that have done him when he stood before God and God says, wait, you missed a lot of things in your life. You're still a sinner and deserve judgment. Paul reckons, recognizes this and he reckons it to be as lost compared to knowing Christ. Matthew Henry, in commenting on this section, says, I should have reckoned myself an unspeakable loser if to adhere to this religious system I had lost any interest in Christ. And I think that's a great way to think about even the things that we consider successful or the things we find our identity in as we pray to God and ask him to change our heart. How much of an unspeakable loser we would be as fathers or as people if we were to put our confidence in an, or our identity in the things of this world instead of in Christ Jesus, our Lord. A mark of a Christian is when he or she becomes one, our sense of values radically changes. And that's something we've lost sight of a little bit, I think. We miss out what Paul says. We miss like the punch of it because American Christianity has become a mile wide and an inch deep. We can add Jesus to our life without changing our priorities without changing our affections. And we have to be careful to constantly reevaluate our own affections and our own loves, what we find our identity in, to make sure it's what is ultimate and what is eternal. Christ changes our whole outlook on life, not just our eternal destiny. Surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as our Lord means that we have a new Lord to follow completely, wholeheartedly, missionally. We've left something else behind. We're no longer following after that. You could probably think of how Christ changed your perspective when you were saved, when you came to Christ. And you may have come to Christ as a young person. I came to Christ when I was 11 years old. I felt like I was older than that when it happened, when I came to Christ. But I remember a lot of things changing in my affections, a lot of things changing in my life direction. And I didn't have a great life of sin when I was 10 years old. But God changed my heart. And thankfully, God saved me from a lot of sin prospectively, I'm sure. Only he knows. 
Why are we so in love with the world when it, its value is so small compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ? Paul tells us that he counted his former status as loss. And we need to do the same thing. We need to count these things as loss in comparison to knowing Christ. The Paul also talks about what he gained, what he gained, the value of knowing Christ. He expounds on his gain-loss perspective here. He says, more than that, or yes, indeed, that was in the past. Here in the present, I am continuing to count. When he says in verse 8, I count all things to be lost in comparison to the surpassing value of knowing Christ, that word count is a, is a present uh, verb. It's something he continues to do. It's a continual reckoning. It's something we have to do regularly. We have to have a continual reckoning about our value systems and our priorities. As I've already mentioned, Paul says, knowing Christ is far better than those status symbols that I had before. He says it's a surpassing value of knowing Christ compared to the former, former works based religion. Now, if we looked at Paul's course of life after he came to Christ, we might think it wasn't all that valuable. You ever read through Acts and and think of Paul's successful ministry? You know, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was persecuted, he was snuck out of a city. I mean, Paul, if anyone had cause for shame because of his ministry, Paul did. The world would have looked at him and said, you gave up a prominent position as a Pharisee? a persecutor of a church, a leader in the religious system for, for running from city to city, trying to preach the gospel, getting your life threatened constantly? Paul says, no, knowing Christ is far better. It's a knowledge of facts about Christ, but more than that, a knowledge gained through the experience of the Christian life, which transformed his entire person. And I think, I was trying to think through this, meditate on this yesterday, you know, what, what value did he experience that was so much greater than the value he had from his cultural status? And I started thinking, you know, a lot of that value comes in his experience of the work of the Spirit in and through him. And he started experiencing the fruits of the Spirit in his life. You ever stop and think what a blessing it is to actually experience the fruits of the Spirit. They're a direct result of knowing Christ Jesus as our Lord and having the Spirit at work in our life and through us. And then so we experience the ability to love, to have real joy, to have peace. I mean, we can, we can experience any conflict, any societal upheaval, and still have peace, knowing God's in control. The fruits of the Spirit are part of what Paul experienced and the work of the Spirit through him. If you've ever led someone to Christ through proclaiming the gospel and the Spirit did a work in their life, you know what a blessing it is to know that now you have impacted by God's grace someone's life for eternity, for, forever. Far better than, than and I love, I love cars too, Mustangs, you know, but going to a car show and showing off your car and impressing people. That's fun. It's enjoyable, but but that that impression lasts for just a moment. But you can have an impression for all eternity. And I think Paul is is talking about these kinds of things when he says knowing Christ. He's not just talking about knowing Christ as his Savior, knowing who Christ was, his person and work, and how Christ died for him. But it's knowing Christ in his experience. Knowing Christ is far better. 
And let's remember that, dads. Knowing Christ is far better than anything we could ever know in this life. Following Christ is far better. He says, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Following Christ is far better. In contrast to his upbringing where he gloried in his own personal familial position, Paul renounces this and submits to Christ as his Lord. That road to Damascus. Remember, Paul was struck with blindness. and He says, who are you? My Lord, he submitted immediately. And then the voice came back, I am Jesus who you persecute. Paul then submitted to Christ, and for the rest of his life he showed that. At some point in our lives, if you know Christ as your Savior, the Spirit opened your eyes to believe the truth of the gospel about the person and work of Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you came to know him, and you came to call upon him as your Lord as well, and to follow him. What a great thing. To know Christ as our Lord. Christ is Lord over all those things we find our identity in, right? Let's go back. He's Lord over our income. He's Lord over our house. He's Lord over our car. He's Lord over our work. He's Lord over our family. He's Lord over our retirement. He's Lord over everything. And so to know Jesus Christ our Lord doesn't doesn't set all of that aside. It subsumes all of that under his lordship to use for his glory. So it actually gives us great fulfillment and great purpose in our lives. Paul makes a graphic comparison as well. He counts them but rubbish. King James is a great translation. Counts it but dung, right? Counts it as refuge compared to the surpassing value of gaining Christ. Aren't you thankful for figures throughout church history that have shown this in their in their life? Um, think of Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Okay, the father of the Moravians. He's not the missionary most people name their kids after, right? It's just hard to say. But he was a wealthy person, and he used his wealth to invest in the cause of missions. He was kind of the original tent-making missionary leader. He would send the Moravians out. He would train them in trades to do jobs, and he would send them out to different parts of the world. And they even went as far as the Virgin Islands and places like that to do their trade, but also to witness for Christ. He invested his wealth in the sake, for the sake of the gospel. Their watchword was to win for the lamb that which was slain, a reward for his sufferings. What a blessing. In Paul's perspective, he changes his perspective by surrendering his self-righteousness, by having the proper priorities in the right place. He also changes his perspective by being satisfied with Christ's Righteousness alone, and I'll end with this. And the rest of the passage is really a a glory in the work of Christ. Paul says in verse 9, you know, I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. He gloried in his position in Christ. Talk a lot about identity today, and The best identity for the Christian is to be found in Christ. My identity is in Christ. Paul was found in Christ. He was positionally in Christ and wanted to be found there when he stood before God. He wanted to stand before God. He wanted God to look at him and see the righteousness of Jesus Christ there. He wanted to see Paul clothed in the robes of righteousness that Christ purchased with his own blood and with his life. He came to believe what he had said in Romans Chapter 3, verses 20 through 22, he says, Because of the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. 
For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul came to find out that through the works of the law, no flesh could be justified. But through the work of Jesus Christ, anyone could be justified if they put their faith in him. Aren't you thankful for that truth? The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you today, if you're here and maybe you're visiting or maybe you've been coming for a long time and you've tried to work out a righteousness that is your own through works of the law. I want to tell you, Christ has fulfilled all righteousness and living a perfect life. He never failed God. That righteousness can be yours through faith. If you put your faith and trust in him today, Paul was found in Christ. And this occurs for all of us when we are born again. He gains righteousness in Christ. Before he thought he gained a righteousness through the law, but now he gains a righteousness on the basis of or through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul found his identity in Christ. And aren't you thankful we have our identity in Christ? Christ's righteousness can never be lost. It can never be damaged. We will attain to it in our experience someday when we're glorified. But until then, we grow in our experience of it as we are sanctified. But we have his righteousness because we are justified. We stand before Christ. We should be growing in it. Paul also says he is steadfast third. He is steadfast in pursuing practical righteousness. He doesn't just talk about his position in Christ, which is a wonderful thing to meditate on, but he actually talks about growing in his practice of righteousness, his practice of Christ-likeness in verses 10 and 11, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul not only knows Christ as his Savior, but he knows him in his experience. As he says in verse 10, that I may know him, continue to know him, continue to know him better and better and more and more. You know, dads, I think as we approach life in our family, our our marriages, I hope you know your wife better now than you did when you were first married. You know, we continue to grow in our knowledge of one another and our relationship. As your children grow up, you continue to know them better and better as they mature, as they start manifesting their own personality traits, their own likes and dislikes and strengths and weaknesses. We continue to know them more and more and so serve them better and better. And it's like this with Paul with Christ. He continues to know Christ more and more. The riches, one writer says, bound up in Christ are unending too many Christians are, are thankful for their original salvation, but they don't spend a lot of time continuing to get to know Christ more and more. Christ, is, his person is unfathomable. His love, his grace, his person is infinite. We can always know him more and more and better and better. Paul wants to know Christ more and more. And also he wants to experience the power of Christ's resurrection, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that makes us holy in growing and enables us to truly do good works. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6 says, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him 
and seated us with him in his in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So because we have resurrection life and resurrection power, we can then do good works for God's glory. And so we know him in our experience in the outworking of that knowledge. This power also enables us to be freed from the slavery of sin in our life. If you're a Christian today, bound by sin, bound by a sin habit, bound by a temptation, Paul says in Romans 6, 4, that so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So as Christ was resurrected, we too might actually walk in resurrected life. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey it in its lust. Do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Paul says here in Romans 6 that we are enabled to live lives that flee temptation, that avoid temptation and follow Christ because we have been raised from the dead. Reckon, our, reckon ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to Christ. One hymn says, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Not only the power of sin that judges us, but the power of sin that controls us is broken. We're just saying, and can it be? Eric led us in that. The verse, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. What a great verse that outlines this text in principle. The power of Christ's resurrection that enables us to follow him. We also know the fellowship of his sufferings. Philippians 1.29 says, It is granted to us not only to believe, but to suffer for his sake. Do you really want to find part of your identity in Christ, the opportunity to suffer for his sake? Well, Paul found that to be something that helped him to know Christ more and more and better and better. Paul wants to identify with Christ in his sufferings, to know him better by suffering for his name's sake. This is not suffering for suffering in and of itself. You know, you don't usually sign up for suffering, right? I remember... um, going through going through cancer treatments and such. And I was like, people ask me, you know, what was that? What did you learn from that? And I said, I never would have signed up for that. You don't sign up for the school of affliction, but you never would want to exchange it either because you learn so much through that opportunity about Christ, about God and his grace. The fellowship of his sufferings. This is part of suffering because of the sin in this life, but it's probably more suffering by identifying with Christ as we share the gospel in the world in which we live. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But we also know that God uses suffering to bring people to glory. And so as we go forth as fathers, we go forth as families, as we go forth as believers in Christ, we see suffering as a means of fellowship with Christ, of knowing him better. And that results in being conformed to his death. Our former life is dead in Christ, as Paul says here in verse 10, being conformed to his death. And we have been raised anew. Homer Kent in his commentary says, the importance of union with Christ must be demonstrated in our experience. Those who died with him and rose with him 
demonstrate in their life a death, a separation from sin, a separation from their old life, now walking in the power of Christ's resurrected life. They're conformed to his death by experiencing that death, but that death includes the resurrected life on the other side of this. And that is with the goal in mind of the resurrection. He hands there in verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul's not here saying, in hopes that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. If perchance I might obtain the resurrection from the dead, there is no doubt that he's going to obtain the final resurrection from the dead, but he wonders about how he will experience that, how it's going to occur. He knows, though, the process is that he has been found in Christ, and now his goal is to know Christ and to to live for Christ and to experience Christ's power in him, setting aside sin, but also pursuing the mission of Christ. And he, know that's, he knows that's going to ultimately lead to the final resurrection, to be with the Lord. He doesn't know how that's going to occur yet in his own course of life, but he knows it will occur. And that will occur for us too. Someday, you know, in spite of the weaknesses that we experience in our flesh, in spite of the struggle we have to maintain the right priorities between this life and the life to come, or between what we pursue materially and what we pursue missionally, the struggles that we experience, we know God is at work in our lives. We, got, we know God will finish that work. Philippians 1.6 is a great verse. He who began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so we look forward to that final resurrection when we will be with the Lord and we will be like the Lord and we will be perfected and we will have no regrets and just glory and joy. Paul had learned to have the right perspective in his life. It's a perspective that surrendered self-righteousness, surrendered identity, identity in this life, in, the, in success, in the view of our culture, in the view of our world. He surrendered that. It's a, it's a life that finds satisfaction and joy in being in Christ, identifying with Christ and his righteousness. And it's a life that remains steadfast in pursuing practical righteousness as we continue to know God and experience the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And as we look forward to the final resurrection, what a blessing that is. So today, Father's Day, dads, a charge to a charge to Christian or a call to Christian fathers. Have you rightly evaluated the priorities in your life? Have I rightly evaluated the priorities in my life? Is the, the ultimate thing for me to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, and to be conformed to his death. And look forward to his resurrection, final resurrection. Where do we stand today? I hope we stand in the Lord, gladly in the Lord. But remember, as Paul had to remember, it's a constant, a constant reevaluation that takes place in his life. It's a constant reevaluation that takes place in our life. And I hope we'll do that. Today, I'm going to close.